and welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by The Score. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joseph Cacharo. What's up? And uh, Joe Wolfon is not able to join us today, but we uh, we, we found a replacement, um, draft expert and overall smiley dude. Will also here. Will? What's going on? Uh, we are recording very late night at The Score Studios. Usually we do this in the afternoon, but uh, now the office is dark and it's just us and <laughs> We are we're, we're gathered here to talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers. First off, we just watched that one game four. The Cavaliers took down the Boston Celtics by a score of one eleven to one hundred two to even the series at two two. Um, the saying goes, you know, a playoff series hasn't started until the home team has lost a game. Cash, do you think that applies in this series? And um, you know, what do you think the rest of the series will look like? Uh, well, first of all, I feel like we should have some like seductive music to start this pod, given this late night edition of it and the, the darkness in the office right now. Um, look, the whole series hasn't started till um, the road team wins a game. In this series, I'd say that's a very uh, dangerous thing for the Celtics because as good as the Celtics are and as Jekyll and Hyde as the Cavs are, I still think the Warriors are the only team that I would confidently take against LeBron James in a winner-take-all Game 7 environment. So um, I think that's a risky proposition for the Celtics to just kind of think it can be chalk for six games and they'll take it in seven. I don't think that's the case. Um, well, LeBron kind of said after Game 1 that he – I mean, LeBron was not good in Game 1, right? Um, he had like seven turnovers in Game 1 um, and, you know, the, the – Cavaliers got smacked, but basically LeBron said after the fact that he was like, you know, just using it to feel out the rhythm of the game, and you could kind of tell, like, game two, he was way better uh, individually. The rest of the Cavaliers didn't help him, so they still lost, but games three and four really does feel like the Cavaliers have kind of figured out ways to attack the Celtics, so if you are the Celtics, like, what points, what matchups uh, are you concerned with? Because it does feel like the Cavaliers have gained momentum throughout the series. Here's what's amazing to me. It's the fact that we talk about LeBron like, oh, you know, I'm going to feel out a playoff game. We've reached that point where we just look at it as like it's not a big deal. Like, it's just LeBron. He's just he's giving him a test for now. So when you see a guy that skilled testing you out for the first two games, you can make the argument because he was a disaster defensively in game two. What, what's Boston really going to do? Like, Marcus Smart did a decent job on him in the fourth. Like, LeBron wasn't amazing in the fourth quarter. The rest of the game, he was outstanding. Like, he dominated Marcus Morris who is apparently the second-best LeBron defender in the world. He defends LeBron well. He but does, this is he a, does. This is as well as you can I'll, humanly defend LeBron. I'll give it to him. But he, like, LeBron was getting by him. LeBron was beating him. He was hitting shots over him. But then, like, I thought, I thought like, similar to kind of like Jason Kidd did in the 2011 finals, like, you had that smaller, really tough guard, like Marcus Smart. He did a good job on him. Maybe just continue trying to do that. Maybe give him the, the assignment. <laughs> like, I don't know what else you could do against them. You just... You have to find a way to demoralize the Cavs where they just don't want to be active anymore like they were in the first two games, where they just don't want to do anything. Because LeBron's going to be LeBron. That's not going to change. Right. Um, but, one of the guys that got really hot um, around LeBron. I mean, we could talk about LeBron, basically, and sort of how he attacked. But you, you got a couple guys stepping up around him at home, right? You got Kyle Korver, um, you know, averaging 14 points. At one point, Will, you tweeted out something. What was the crazy side you had that you tweeted out? It was. So up until, like, the I think the two-minute mark of the third quarter, Kyle yeah. Korver had 28 points in seven quarters on nine shots, and then I unfortunately jinxed it because he missed his next shot like two seconds later. And it was wide open, too. And it was That's wide like, open. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Kyle Korver's been hot. George Hill has kind of woken up. 
uh, and Tristan's gotten going. Um, I mean, Cash, if you're the Cavaliers, you must you you have to really like your situation at this point. Yeah, what I've you know what I'd actually really like to dig into is probably something I'll do once the pod's over is I'd like to see um, comparing games one and two to games three and four in terms of how late in the shot clock the Cavs are getting their offense. And not in a bad way. What I'm saying is that they seem, at least to the naked eye, they seem like they've been a lot more patient, mm-hmm. kind of attacking the Celtics defense. And that's how they're finding these mismatches. You know, we talked last week about how in the first two games, the Celtics, like, they were so pinpoint accurate with their switches and with their help and recovery on LeBron and double teaming him right. that even LeBron didn't have a passing lane. You know, he didn't have that split second to find guys. And it just seems like in the two games in Cleveland, whether it's maybe making an extra pass, maybe it's kicking it out and kind of resetting things, getting another action going, they just seem to be a lot more patient with waiting until they could find that mismatch mm-hmm. instead of just kind of bending to the will of the Celtics defense. You know, whether that's, you know, you mentioned in our notes here, LeBron just abusing t- poor Terry Rozier. Yeah, I mean, they're focusing on that, that whoever the point guard is. I mean, a little bit less was smart, but especially when it's Rozier. And the Celtics don't have depth at point guard now that Larkin is out. Yep. Like, they're going and attacking the point guard. And honestly, if Larkin was in, the problem would be even worse because he's pesky, but he's yeah. tiny. He's a tiny dude. Yeah, and I think, I really do think, you know, I th- it's not always that simple, but I think just to the naked eye watching the first two games to the last two for me that's the biggest difference is just how much more patient the Cavs offense is and um, they're just a little more precise in finding those mismatches and taking advantage of them mm-hmm. and and the Celtics are also just making some weird mistakes like I'm, another thing I mentioned last week was that if there's one thing you know about the Celtics they're not going to beat themselves right. and you know Brad Stevens has them prepared and they're going to execute with such precision but then you look at these two games in Cleveland and it's like mm-hmm. not the Celtics that we've known um this season, like careless turnovers, even like their end of quarter execution, the end of the first quarter tonight, they get outscored 8-1 with LeBron on the bench. Right. Catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. The end of the second quarter, I think they had cut it to like nine and then it's back to 17 quickly. So they did the same thing at the end of the third quarter and it was always like careless turnovers or some defensive miscommunication, just really, really uncharacteristic Celtics ball, these two games in Cleveland. Well, you're starting to see Jason Tatum looks more like a rookie the past couple games as well. Uh, Jalen Brown hasn't been tremendous and you kind of desperately need him to be because what else do you really have, right? Like you don't really have much of a scoring option, especially if Al Horford's not going to be able to find anybody or play well. He's been a mess the past couple games. You need somebody to step up and there's just nobody to do it without Kyrie or without Gordon Hayward. And I think that's that's the big issue right there just to kind of simplify it, kind of what you could look at. Right. I mean, look, I think the biggest issue for the Celtics uh, in these two road games has been offensively. Um, scoring 102 points uh, in Game Four and then 83 points in Game Three. Game Three was a big, way bigger issue because, uh, like, I think the the Celtics, you know, catch to your point, like they kind of just became disengaged. They weren't as well prepared as they normally are. You know, they came out of the gate flat. They were down um, 20 to four, like right out the bat, like, and then uh, Stevens is kind of like freaking out and creating these weird matchups out there with like Monroe on the floor with. Yabusele and Baines and Horford and it was just it was strange to see the Celtics sort of not come out with energy and you know they talked about it like they said game three you know they just didn't play their own game but I feel like the Cavaliers have steadily defended the the Celtics better and better and this is where you really do miss those you know transcendent stars like Kyrie like you know like Hayward because those are the kind of guys where they're so good at being aggressive towards the basket they're able to generate 
and create sort of um, a system around them, right? Whereas now, what the Celtics did in games one and two, which was a lot of playing off their defense and getting, you know, runouts and going the other way for scores, which is still kind of doing, but, you know, in their half-court offense, they were doing a lot of just, like, put into the post, someone comes and curls, there's a weak side action, and they were generating a lot of looks just based off running their sets. But the Cavaliers have kind of cleaned that up in games three and four. One guy that's really stepped up there is Tristan Thompson, who he has really historically played a really good game against Al Horford. Tristan Thompson basically only plays well against the Celtics and kind of against the Warriors. Um, But especially Al Horford, like he's come up, he's really hugging Al Horford. He's not giving him any room to pop. And and Horford has really cooled off these last two games. And I feel like Tristan, um, especially his insertion into the starting lineup to match Al Horford's minutes, has been a great move by Ty Lue. Yeah, it's been fantastic. And I, like I tweeted tonight too, Tristan just looks like he's got his swagger back a little bit. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know if it's just the confidence in the matchup that he's had some historical success against Horford, but he looks just so much more engaged and into the game. Um, and the minutes probably help with that too. But yeah, he just, um, he, has the, he has the playbook on Al. That's what it seems like. He knows where he's going to be. Um, he's defending him really smart. And there was even a couple times in the first quarter where I thought even Kevin Love defensively did a surprisingly good job like defending in space. A couple mm-hmm. times he got uh, sure. on Morris. I thought he did a really good job kind of holding his own. Kyle Korver had some like sneaky good defensive plays. Like, Known shot block. I don't know. It's just Korver. all of a sudden everything just clicking for the Cavs. And, and it's funny because Will opened the podcast last week saying um, it's time to bury the Cavs again after mm. – you know, and kind of making a joke of the fact that, like, one week we say the Cavs are back, one week we're saying, well, the 2017-18 Cavs are back, and it's time to bury them again, and here we are a week later being like, oh, they figured the Celtics out, and LeBron might be back to the finals. Like, You know, what's funny about Tristan Thompson, just really quickly, it's the things he could do offensively, even though he's so limited, he just has such a great understanding of where LeBron's going to pass it. And they have such a great connection because they've been playing together for four years. And you just see these new guys. They have no idea where to cut, no idea where to go. Right. Tristan Thompson's always in the right spot. Even though like you have this 6'9", uh, he's not like a crazy athletic center. He's, you, know, you, you don't really expect much from him offensively. And he's just always in the right spot. Mm-hmm. And LeBron just always finds him. Whether it's with an insane pass, whether it's with an easy dish, he's always there. Like, and that's making such a big difference because... They're collapsing on LeBron thinking, what's Tristan Thompson going to do? And then they just got an easy two points, and that's happening over and over again. And the one thing, too, I was just saying, like, I think it was in the first quarter, Tristan had, there was a switch, or like, I don't know if it was an offensive rebound, but he ended up with Rozier on him uh, right. in the post. Yeah. And it's like, you saw it then of just how he's not a polished offensive player, but he's a smart enough player, and he can do enough offensively. It's like, if you end up with Terry Rozier on him in the post, he's going to, like, establish position. He's going to ask for the ball, and then it's going to look really clunky. He's going to, like, fumble over his feet, but he's going to get the bucket right. because he, like, recognized the mismatch and did it. And, yeah, if, if he's having the impact he's having defensively and Tyloo can keep him on the floor, that's really all you need from him on the offense. You know, like, 100%. grab some offensive boards and recognize when it is an opportunity to score. Right, right. And, look... As much praise as all the rest of the Cavaliers are getting, though, I think I do want to circle back to LeBron because it does feel like um, I think he's just found different ways to attack mismatches. Like even like game one, he was he was he was bad. Um, you know, maybe he was feeling out the game or whatever, but yeah, he was just bad. Game two, he came out red hot. But if if you recall game two, even though he had forty plus points, a lot of that was just him hitting a bunch of jumpers, which like the Celtics are going to give him jumpers in their game plan. Um, but especially games three and four, his assists were um, up in game three, and then game four was much more of a score. But it very much felt like 
you know, the, basically the Cavaliers know where they can get LeBron into advantageous scenarios. And a lot of their offense right now is just coming off that forcing a screen in the middle of the floor to get Rozier on LeBron. And then LeBron will then try to post him up or drive at him. And, you know, the Celtics have no choice but to zone up behind him uh, and, you know, play on four on three. And that's where LeBron is deadly. Like, LeBron is able to ping passes, whether it's to Kyle Korver, Love, George Hill, J.R. Smith. Like, that's when that's when the Cavaliers are at their best in the half court, when they play mismatch basketball with LeBron because LeBron is such a walking mismatch. And that's the part where I don't really know what else the Celtics can do because they've tried everything at this point. They've played four on three. They've zoned up on the weak side. Um, they have, you know, well, they haven't really doubled LeBron, but you can't double LeBron. He's no. just going to find an easier pass that way. But they've they've tried switching. Um, you know, they've tried doing that crazy thing where while the ball's in there and in the post, like they switch in the post, which is just so hard to execute. And LeBron's LeBron. He's going to find a solution. There's no defense he hasn't seen. And, and that's the part that would worry me if, as a Celtics fan. But also, the Celtics are 1-6 on the road this year, right? And, Cash, let me just ask you. What what part of the Celtics game doesn't translate because they're such a phenomenal home team and they haven't been they're undefeated at home but they're one and six uh, on the road. It, it really doesn't make any sense to me. It never does. Like whenever you know, I know a lot of like old players that are on TV that usually don't provide good analysis. But the one thing that they do always harp on, and it does seem to make sense, is that the role like role players play well at home and probably aren't going to give you what you need from them on the road. Um, and maybe it goes back a little bit to the fact that the Celtics, for the most part, are a collection of good role players. That's true. That um, are maybe playing above their heads a little bit. So, like, maybe that's part of it. Um, it also goes back to, like, you know, Will, you mentioned the fact that Tatum's finally looking like a rookie. They do have a lot of young players that, in normal circumstances, you would not expect to consistently rise to the occasion in the playoffs. Like, they're going to have bad games. They're going to hit that postseason rookie wall, too. And for the Celtics, unfortunately, it seems like it's all happening at the same time. Another thing, Will, that, you know, you mentioned it almost looks like, in a way, they might not have anything else to throw at the Cavs. I thought it was interesting, you know, Brad Stevens, if there's one thing you can say about him in the games, he stays very composed. Yes, And he never looks rattled. It never, because I think we assume he's smart enough that he has a counter. He's got something in his head. He's not going to kind of let the moment uh, take over him. But there was a lot of times tonight where he looked yeah, visibly up, frustrated and out of calls. character. Yeah, that's the thing I was going to say. Like, they got had some, you could probably say some unfortunate calls went against them early in the game. Some of those, like, missed bunnies and dunks probably could have been fouls. Right. But the way the Celtics reacted to those missed calls was something that you don't normally see from them. And including Brad Stevens was kind of losing it on the sidelines. They had that play at the end of, I can't remember if it was the end of the first quarter or the second quarter, where Stevens wanted them to hold Right. The last shot as Jalen Brown tried to dunk. Jalen Brown went up for that dunk because he thought he had a clear lane, and it ends up coming back the other way because he gets blocked, I think, or he like misjumped, and the Cavs get the points in the other end, and then Stevens like lights him up going right. into that timeout, and like you just don't see that yeah. from Brad Stevens, and you don't see the Celtics look that discombobulated that often. Like they look rattled. Yeah, they got to find a way to get their confidence back. But I think going back to TD Garden, like that's as confident of a place you can really play in because that's just been a crazy home crowd you know pretty much since forever um will it's the best of, it's the best of three right now what's your prediction for the series uh i'm gonna go the Cavs win the next two okay all right I, like if they're gonna win boston you might as well just make it the next one when you're already hot mm. like they're just boston boston just doesn't look right the past couple games and 
they don't have LeBron James. Like it's it just it sounds like a broken record, but it is what it is. Um, one thing I like that Royce Young actually tweeted, which I found very interesting. He mentioned he kind of broke the barrier of coaches where now we're starting to see people blame the players mm-hmm. when a team loses instead of that coach. Whereas usually we're blaming the coach for a loss and praising them for a win. Right. This is the complete opposite or praising the players for a win. This is the complete opposite. And yeah. it's, it's understandable because you have a great coach that's done a great job game planning and the, the players have done a great job as well. Like not to take away from them, but at the end of the day, they're too young. They're not experienced enough. And you're going up against the greatest player in the world. Yeah. And I mean, Kevin Love is still there. Kevin Love hasn't played great, but he's still doing great things. And end of the day, it's, it's just too tough to beat them two more times. It is a bit of a double standard, right? And you can see it right there in the series. Ty Lue gets no credit no matter what happens. Something good happens to the Cavaliers. Look at LeBron doing it again. And then if something bad happens is Ty Lue sucks, LeBron gets no help. That's Whereas exactly on the other it. end, yep. it's the exact opposite, right? Yep. But, but uh, yeah, Stevens is, you know, definitely in that. He's still in the honeymoon phase, and yeah. he's not going to take any responsibility from people in the media just yet. And, and honestly, it's hard to knock him because he's working with such a shorthanded roster right now. Um, Cash, series prediction? Uh, I think the Cavs win the series. I, I Again, I know it sounds simplistic, but like I said at the beginning of the show, I I really think if the Celtics are going to win this series, they got to win the next two games because I do not – I know they have home court advantage, but I just don't see this Celtics team mm-hmm. beating LeBron James in a winner-take-all. I just don't. Right. Um, I think I initially thought Cavs in six, but I'm going to say Cavs in seven now. Um and look, I know we're all kind of picking against the, the Celtics, but like it's kind of a coin flip. It really is. Like, I think the Celtics are going to take Game Five um, and and have the momentum back, and then you know LeBron's probably going to put on some sort of vintage performance, which he's just consistently put on throughout the playoffs, and, and win Game Six, which will be tight regardless of what happens. And then Game Seven, you know, it's tough. It's tough to pick against LeBron in Game Seven. It just is. Anyway. Uh, moving over to the Western Conference, the uh, Golden State Warriors are up 2-1 over the Houston Rockets. Game three was uh, an emphatic blowout um, that just kind of got worse and worse and worse for, um, you know, the Rockets. Uh, they lost by 41 points. Um, Mike D'Antoni ended up calling his team soft. They played soft in game three. And, you know... It's it's hard not to say that because they played really well in game two. They got the win. A bunch of supporting players stepped up. P.J. Tucker and Trevor Reza, you know, went off. And then all of a sudden, game three, like, the Celt- basically the Warriors just said, look, we're not playing around anymore. Uh, we're going to take it seriously. And this was the result. Cash, I just think, like, how hard it would be if you are the Rockets to come back emotionally from something like this and just I mean, pick up your confidence? Look, it's going to be tough, but I think – I think they have a confident veteran group that, you know, has to remind themselves they won 65 games. They played the Warriors well for the most part all year. Like, they've got the talent. Um, they've got the variance with the way they play in shooting. Like, that they can hang with this team, and they've proven it before. So, they really just got to look at it as, like, just get yourself up for this one game, find a way to get this one game, and send it back to Houston 2-2. Because I think we all agree that if they lose the next game, even if they come back and win five, like they're not going to come back from three run down against the Warriors, even though it's happened before, but that was pre KD. Um, Yeah. I think the one like kind of disheartening thing, I think if you're a Rockets fan that maybe the players and the coaching staff would admit, but if you're a fan, I think you'd have to admit is, you know, after those first two games and after the Rockets, um, even the series after game two, there was a lot of talk about how, you know, 
even the Warriors' death lineup, like the Hamptons 5 lineup, wasn't dominating the Rockets. In fact, the Rockets were actually beating that lineup, and it was the Rockets' small ball lineup with P.J. Tucker at the 5 that was, like, the better small ball lineup in this series. And I think people were really buying into, like, oh, the Rockets can not only hang with the Warriors, they can beat them at their own game. And then I think what Game 3 reminded us of is that Steph Curry is what stirs the pot, man. He is just what makes it happen. He's what makes the Warriors the Warriors. Mm-hmm. He's what broke the game, like broke the system in a way. Right. Um, he's the cheat code. And so I, that's what I think would be disheartening for the Rockets is like you think you've got them or you've got them at a point where you figured them out, you can play their game with them, and then you get this sobering, harsh dose of reality where it's like, oh, yeah, but Steph is still Steph. And if Steph is healthy and Steph, we probably don't have a chance. Well, what do you what do you think the difference was for Steph? Um, because he was he wasn't necessarily bad in games one and two, but he was not you know on fire with the three ball. And then game three, he comes out really cold, but finishes with thirty five points. He's hitting all sorts of crazy shots. He's sunning James Harden and and Chris Paul. And I don't know, Steph is back. Why why, why is Steph back? It's it's Steph. This is what he does. Like two days before that game, he hit sixty nine of seventy five threes in practice. Like it's. It's a joke for him. That's insane. It is. It is. Like the thing with Steph is he was he was he wasn't horrific those first couple of games offensively. It's just his shots weren't falling. Like I think I read somewhere he's hitting 81% of his shots at the rim this series, which right. leads the which leads the series and he's taken the most shots at the rim as well, which is like absolutely insane. Right. Cuz this is a three-point shooter, but he's still an outstanding finisher. But then uh-huh. when his shots aren't falling, we're so quick to just be like, "Oh, he's the worst." What's wrong with him? Is he is he hurt? Is he there were, is he done? There was there were questions directed at Steve Kerr asking him, "Do you ever lose confidence in Steph's shot?" That's like ridiculous. Really? You should have for real. Like you should have your credentials revoked if you ask that Honestly, question. Like, I'm being serious. Yeah. We're talking about the best shooter ever. Like he's so insanely good. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can't you you can look at him and be like, man, he's so off right now, and it sucks to watch because you're so used to watching how great he is. Right. But then when he's so great, you almost hate watching the game because it ends up being a freaking forty point blowout. So yeah, it's it's just unbelievable that people could even try to discredit him. Like he's still he is still trying to recover at the same time, and he's still trying to get his uh, rhythm. I'm sure he's hundred percent, like Kerr said. I'm sure that's the case. But you see a game like all he had to do was just heat up in game three, and look what happened. Just mm-hmm. like that, it was nothing. Yeah, and I think the the best part if you're a Warriors fan is that like Steph never lost confidence in himself at all, and he never um, be, he was never less aggressive. I thought there were times in games one and two where he kind of forced a three, although it's always hard to you know make that distinction with Steph based on how well he shoots. But I mean, look, the Warriors like they took what was available to them, right? And the Rockets are really playing up on Steph, taking him off the three point line and letting him drive to the rim. And to his credit, he's been driving and finishing, and so. You know he had he, he basically established that in the in the in the, in the first two games and then really in the, in the third game game three like he still was really effective at driving to the rim and stuff um but i mean i just thought that like when steph is really going and he's really aggressive and he can dump it into the post especially if it's draymond or if it's sean livingston or something like that but basically a playmaking post player um then steph can run around and create chaos and that's when he's most effective, when he's running at you in semi-transition, when he's running off the ball. And I just thought the Warriors, like, the reason they won game three was, you know, they were able to create a lot more of those um, sort of chaos moments. And the Warriors are the league's best team at, at chaos because they can always shoot. And um, 
you know, like defensively, obviously that's where you can create the most chaos. If you can create turnovers, you can create misses and run, and they did a great job of that in game three. But just overall, like there's more depth. There's way more depth in the Warriors' offense than the Rockets' offense. And you're seeing the Rockets. Like they get one shot in their half-court set and they're done. They don't really run in transition as much. And, you know, when you add it all up, like, it's just going to be hard to beat the Warriors that way. Uh, to be honest, like, I thought the first half or the majority of the first half of Game 3, I thought the Rockets were generating decent looks. Like, I thought yeah, they, they were generating. Some they missed some layups. They missed some, like, open threes. They missed some good looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, and then I just thought Steph went Steph in the third quarter, and that was it. And um, if you're the Rockets, like, you got to keep doing what you do, but you have to take advantage of open looks, and I know it's so easy to say, "Well, you got to make your open looks," because it's not always going to happen. Mm-hmm. But they're even a team as great as the Rockets. The margin for error against probably the most talented team of all time is slim to none. Right. So if you have a half where you're generating good looks, but you still end up coming out of it like down twelve, and then Steph heats up, it's good night. Yeah. Well, when your second best player is Chris Paul and you need Chris Paul to absolutely dominate that matchup, like you need him to beat Steph Curry to win this series. Like if he's not the the second, third best player in the series, like how are you supposed to win? Like you have four superstars on one side and two on the other, but then you have guys like Kavon Looney who did a decent job defending. Man, Kavon Looney was yeah, a revelation. He, he was great that he game. He blocked. He he snatched Luke Richard Madmute's soul. Like, uh, he did. Oh, that was an unreal block, and he had a couple possessions where he shut down. We were talking about this. Yeah, where he yeah, shut down yeah. CP, and then you had Clay Thompson did an outstanding job on CP3. I think uh, I think I read that he was defending him for more than half the game. Chris Paul got up three shots against Klay Thompson, missed all of them, yeah, including the one that was blocked. Like, just <laughs> yeah, pull up three. Yeah, yeah, the pull up three that was blocked. Like, he couldn't, he couldn't move. He couldn't do anything that game. And you need him to dominate this series a little more than this, right? If you want a chance to win. Yeah, and and that's where I would be a little bit concerned as a Rockets fan because you know Harden. It, Harden's doing what he's doing. Like he had a phenomenal game one. He's cooled off a little bit, but he's still averaging twenty four points per game. He's not hitting his step back threes as much, which is a huge thing for him. He needs to be able to have that step back three. But there's just less mismatches to to get against the uh, against the Warriors, and even the one that they keep wanting to go to, which is Harden against Steph. There's a lot of bad highlights of Steph getting burnt on defense, but like defensively, Steph is only allowing like 0.88 points when isolated by Harden, whereas the other way around, like Steph is kind of cooking Harden when it's switching the other way. So, you know, like, you know, Harden's kind of doing what you kind of expect from Harden. He's been okay, but it's just like Chris Paul hasn't provided enough secondary scoring. And and when I talk about secondary scoring, I mean, like, this is such a this is such an isolation-based offense that, like, that secondary scoring has to be, like, generated on your own merit, basically. It has to be Chris Paul against a mismatch. And, you know, like, it's hard to say which mismatches Chris Paul can get unless it's a big man switch sign to him. He's not getting good looks off. And even if it's Kavon Looney, Looney has shut down Chris Paul a lot. The last two games of the series, games two and three, Chris Paul is averaging 14 points, shooting 37% from the field, 31, 32% from deep, and he only has, like, you know, 10 assists against five turnovers. That's not enough. That's just not enough. Well, and again, it goes back to, like, the Warriors' talent and versatility. Of, like, where do you... Where do you yeah. uh, target like for looking for a mismatch? Even if you're a guard as creative as Chris Paul and as good off the dribble as Chris Paul, it's like, 
well, you get Kevin Durant switched up. Like, that's not a good no. mismatch. Or Draymond. You get Draymond, like, yeah. probably the best all-around defender in the game. That's not a good mismatch. The only real mismatches you can target if you're, like, a Chris Paul on that team are their more traditional bigs, like guys like JaVale or Zaza. You know what I mean? And they're guys not like playing play. much. Yeah, and th- those guys play. don't play. And yeah. then when you get Kevon Looney comes in the game and he ha- does a phenomenal job staying with CP on the perimeter when he gets switched onto him. So, like, where are the mismatches for the Rockets or any team yeah. to... To pick out and target against the Warriors, it's basically just Nick Young. Like honestly, like <laughs> like Chris yeah. Chris Paul basically got most of his points against Nick Young in a meaningless stretch in the third quarter there, um, when the Warriors just basically got the buy time. The only one concern is though with the Warriors is that they are kind of thin on the wing, which is kind of absurd to say because they have some of the league's best wings, but they just don't have much depth, right? Like the only guy they have off the bench is Nick Young. I really hated that they got rid of Omri Caspi earlier in the year. I thought I mean, would, I and thought, Iguodala's hurt now too. And Iguodala's hurt, yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, if Iguodala's actually out for even one or two games, that really, really puts the Warriors in danger because like you just need bodies out there. He's like playing power forward sometimes. He's playing... Um, you know, he's he's playing as a secondary playmaker to get Curry off the ball. Like, it's just they need Andre to be healthy. And, um, you know, right now he's doubtful. Who knows what happens? Maybe he comes back. It's the playoffs. People usually, you know, if it's just a contusion, people usually play through it. But who knows, man? That, that, could, be, that could be dangerous. Yeah, and again, like we were just saying, right, there's the only guys um, that are real liabilities on the Warriors, they're not, you know, like, a lot of teams have liabilities, and the reason they still play is because they excel in other areas, and the team needs what they actually do well. Mm-hmm. From the Warriors' perspective, like none of those guys that are liabilities, the Warriors don't actually need their minutes. It's not like they need um, a traditional big man in there. But if Iguodala's hurt, right. Will, you mentioned that lack of depth on the wing. Now, all of a sudden, if you actually need minutes from yeah, it's gonna Nick be Quinn Young, Cook. Then, then you're in trouble. Right. It's going to be like Nick Young, Quinn Cook. Pat McCaw's been hurt. Omri Caspi was cut. It's dicey. Like I'll give it. I'll give yeah. credit to Nick Young. He hasn't. I don't think he's been horrible this series. I don't think he's been horrible in general for the Warriors. Like yeah. sometimes he's a little unplayable because it's Nick Young. But I mean, he's he's done a pretty decent job for the most part. The if problem you, with Nick Young is that he's Nick Young. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I mean, that's generally everything that's generally about who he is. Yeah. is a, <laughs> but like he's he's mostly done okay. Like it's, he's on a team full of superstars. Like it can't be that that's bad, true. right? So. You plug him in and it's not horrific, but I mean, he's not Andre Iguodala and he's not going to be. And do you really want him to be the next guy up? Because then behind him, who do you have really, right? You're kind of yeah. stuck. Yeah, no, that's the thing with the Warriors. And that's when, if the Warriors somehow don't win the championship this year, we're going to have to look back on the fact that Bob Myers put like seven centers on this team. When you <laughs> just look at the roster, like, <laughs> you know, JaVale, Zaza, David West, who's been great overall, but just doesn't play a lot in these series when you have a lot of shooters, and I don't really see him playing that much against Cleveland either. Um, but, you know, <laughs> then you got Jordan Bell, then you have Kevon Looney, Damian Jones, and then also Draymond is playing center like half the game. So that's seven centers that you have in, in, in a team where basically you're known for revolutionizing Light the NBA. years, baby. Light years. I don't know how this made sense. Like... I remember there was one game where Steph was out and me and Wolfhound were watching and I was just looking at it and thinking, and we both thought to ourselves, maybe the Warriors don't have that many great shooters without Steph. Yeah. And, like, they really don't. No, they don't. They have three super elite shooters, probably the three best shooters in the NBA, which is Mm mind-blowing. But after that, who do you have that's a real consistent shooter? You have, like, Nick Young's a streak shooter. Draymond's kind of a streak shooter. 
do you want Iguodala shooting threes? Probably not. Like, there aren't a lot of good shooters on this roster. So you have to have those three guys there. Right. But after that, you really don't have an insane amount of shooting. But it's enough to just absolutely blow out the league still. True. Which is crazy. Yeah. But then again, no one's going to cry poor for the Warriors. No. It's really never. their own design. I think they should have just grabbed more wings. Only, only Warriors fans will cry for the Warriors. We You're believe too. <laughs> yeah, the We Believe Two movement is, is is a tremendous troll job. Um but um yeah, like I said in the first series, um, you know, I I asked for your series predictions. This one is still just two one, so I'm I don't know if you guys want to give it, but um I think I confidently have Warriors in six. That's what I was gonna say. I was gonna say Warriors in six. I think if Iggy's hurt though. Yeah. I do think that's big. Oh, I'm like if, factoring Iggy's being hurt. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think if the Rockets can even the series and Iguodala's actually hurt and it lingers, I, you okay. know, yeah. it again, it just cracks that margin of error open a little bit. It's oh. just like a they just don't have bodies at that point. Yeah. You can't put for sure. Quinn Cook out there. Right. He'll get burned. That's and what I'm you, saying. You can only survive so many Kavon Looney minutes. As much as we've given Kavon Looney love, like he's not gonna he's not gonna be a guy you can play 30 minutes on the road in a playoff game. No, no, yeah. you don't want that anyway. I'll what? probably I'll probably go. If if Iguodala comes back for game four, I'm going to go ahead and say five games. If he misses game four, it's got to be six games. <laughs> I, like that, I like that the Warriors are so good that it's like if one of their key pieces is out, uh, it'll, it'll take them six yeah. games to beat this 65-win <laughs> number one overall seed. Like, it'll be an exhausting six games. Yeah. Poor, poor, uh, poor Warriors. Yeah. And look, we have you look. Listen, with the Rockets, you also have to factor in the inexplicable Chris Paul, like three minutes in crunch time where he does weird stuff, or James Harden just having like an eleven turnover game. Like you just never know with the Rockets. I feel I, you just there's, there's just so much ball pounding sometimes. I don't understand what's going on. No, this <laughs> yeah. ball pounding on pound the rock, man. Oh, that's that's right. sorry, that's my bad. Right. I'm a newbie, man. I'm trying to get used to it. Dwayne, we miss you, man. We miss you. All right, look. We're going to take a quick break right here, and uh, we're going to come back on the other side with Make or Miss, except this week we're going to devote the entire Make or Miss section uh, towards the NBA draft, and we'll look ahead to it uh, with Will. Welcome back to Pound the Rock. Um this week on Make or Miss, we're going to change it up a little bit. We're going to focus entirely on the NBA draft and look ahead. Um, you know, the lottery results, uh, you know, came down on Friday. Uh, and here to um, discuss basically the scouting profiles, the strength and weaknesses of the top players in the upcoming draft and some of the sleepers in the 2018 draft. We can start here. Um, who do you think is the best player in this draft? It's easy to narrow it down to two guys. Uh, you bring it down to uh, Arizona's DeAndre Ayton or uh, the Slovenian phenom Luka Doncic. Uh, take your pick for who you think it is. You're probably not wrong. I tend to lean toward uh, Ayton mostly because he's such a monster. Uh, he's 7'1", 250 pounds, uh, 7'5", wingspan. You don't get a lot of guys like that uh, with his kind of just nasty athleticism. Uh, his build is a lot like a David Robinson, a, a Greg Oden, a Joel Embiid. Uh, you just you have to love guys like that that can just dominate inside. Uh, he's the best part about him is he could step out and shoot. Uh, he he proved that throughout the year that he has like a really solid mid range jumper and he stretched it out to the three point line. If he can make that three point jumper a consistent thing, I don't know how you stop a guy like that on the offensive end. 
there is a lot of question marks when it comes to his defense, and understandably so. Uh, he's very slow laterally. Uh, if he could, mm. if he could figure out how to become a quicker player and just help out against the perimeter players, he'd be tremendous. Like it's just a guy that's not going to be stoppable. That's that's a bit of a concern though. But I mean, if we're talking about Phoenix with the number one pick. Defense has never been uh, Phoenix's uh, main concern historically. <laughs> so I feel like Aiton would fit, be a nice fit for them. Um, you know, not only because uh, he's, you know, like you said, probably the most talented guy in this draft, but also just like it makes sense to pair a front court player with someone like Devin Booker. But, you know, like you mentioned, um, Doncic is also one of those guys who, you know, if you would describe as who is the most complete basketball player, you probably would pick Doncic because not only is he. Um, you know, this like six foot nine point guard with an ability to shoot and play make and everything like that. But he's also had training in the in the Euro League, and we've seen players when they come from Europe, they're really well drilled. They know how to cut. They know how to defend various coverages. He's been playing against fully grown men, whereas like a lot of these other guys from college have been playing against collegiate players. But I think the one concern with Doncic that you know unfortunately gets attached to every single European prospect is. Um, do you feel like his lack of explosive athleticism is going to hold him back? It's it's unfortunate that he gets stuck with people like uh, Andrea Bargnani. Like, that's the last thing you want. I'm sure Raptors fans know that more than anybody else. Yeah. Uh, the thing with Doncic is, yeah, his athleticism is not ideal. You'd want him to be have that kind of Colin Sexton-type athleticism. Uh, but he has sort of sneaky athleticism where he doesn't have great foot speed and it sucks because he's going to have a tough time defending the perimeter. Um, he does a great job. Uh, he has great hands, for one. He has high IQ. He makes really good decisions defensively. And when he does make bad decisions, you can honestly chalk it up to just being an 18, 19-year-old. Like, he's still young. So people that criticize him and say his athleticism is not good enough haven't watched him, haven't watched him enough to really criticize him or critique him properly. Uh, he does a lot of great things like he runs the transition he runs transition so well he can finish on the break he can finish over bigger guys if you watch him play against a guy like Kristaps Porzingis in the Euro basket uh, he just absolutely torched him and we're talking about Kristaps Porzingis the guy that we view as this outstanding perimeter def- as this outstanding defender uh, he's just a seven foot three monster that can block shots well Doncic was scoring over him for mm-hmm. an entire game so I don't think it's really fair to really just say, okay, he has no athleticism, he's not going to be good, he's a bust. No, he's going to be a tremendous basketball player. And honestly, if you respect the game, you will you will enjoy watching him play. Yeah, I think um, this is just like a, a baseline assumption, really, because if it wasn't for the fact that he's European, I don't I don't think there will be these concerns. And also, fair. I think it's it's a bit uh, exaggerated because we're talking about a guy who's six foot ten, right? And like, if it's one thing if you're a small guard. Uh, and you lack athleticism, then you're an obvious like point to be exploited. But I mean, if you're six foot ten and you have an ability to play the game and you have just even respectable quickness, like you look at uh, you know other European guys like um, Dario Sarge, for example, right? Like Sarge has no issues defensively, yeah, right? And for sure. if you're six foot ten, you have versatility. You could be hidden on a wing player. Um, you don't just have to be a point. This isn't like a Trey Young situation, no, and we'll no. talk about Trey Young in a second, but. Um, yeah, I, I think Doncic's sort of defensive uh, weaknesses, you know, wherever they might be, um, are being talked up a little bit too much. Especially since like they're overlooking the fact that this is a six foot ten yes. guy. He's compared yeah. himself to Ben Simmons. Let's let's put it this way: he's he's uh, around six eight, six nine, around that 
around that range and mm-hmm. 230 pounds and he's extremely physical he's a very strong kid you right. know and you have to be physical to survive sure. playing in your league oh for sure people forget that these people don't even know that these guys are practicing twice a day and mm-hmm. they're going hard for two three hours each time and people just look at it and say oh european basketball they're soft they're really not that soft they're tough guys generally a lot of these guys that come into the nba from europe they're coming in at 16, 17 years old, and they didn't play in Europe. Mm-hmm. This is an MVP candidate we're talking about, and it's probably time to show them a little bit of respect. True. Um, another MVP candidate, uh, if you you know were to hand out such a thing for college, uh, would be Trey Young. I mean, he led the nation in scoring with like 27 points a game. He had uh, 20 assist games in college. He was a phenomenal distributor. He did cool off later towards the you know pretty much the back end of the NCAA season from January onward, but. Um, Trey Young is definitely, in terms of all the players in this draft, perhaps the buzziest of, uh, of all of them. Um, what are, do you feel like one? Do you feel like he's the best point guard in this draft? And B, do you feel like his game will translate to the NBA? Well, let's just give him a quick shout out for being the first guy ever, I'm pretty sure, to lead the nation in both points and assists. Like mm. you're doing that in the NBA, that's pretty damn impressive. But right. you just you never see that in college. Period. Like that is unbelievable for a guy to be able to drop 30 a game and 10 assists a game it's absolutely insane like you mentioned he had a 22 assist game like what is that how is that even possible he dropped 26 points in that game you know but as for him being the best in the draft uh it's hard to say just because you don't know what shy gilgis alexander is going to become okay you don't know if if uh, Colin Sexton's going to translate because he's such an elite athlete. Yeah. You know, and he's got a great motor too. Oh, he's tremendous. And he yeah. just, like, Sexton might average 12 free throws a game. Like, he, he's yeah. that kind of guy. He's that physical. And and Gildas Alexander is, he's 6'6 with a 6'11 wingspan running mm-hmm. the point. Like, that's a scary guard. Right. You know, that's a very scary guard that's going to be able to defend three positions. Trey Young's going to struggle on the defensive end, most likely. You're going to have to hide him. Yeah. Uh, and it's not going to be an easy guy to hide. He's not like Steph. Like, Steph has a little bit of sneaky athleticism, right? Like, right. you see Steph as a three-point shooter. He's not a great defender, but he's also not that bad of a defender. Like, he's getting beat by great point guards if he's getting beat, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's not like he's getting dominated by Shabazz Napier every game. Right. Trey Young might get dominated by Shabazz Napier. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's a concern. Okay, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, the, the testing measurements, like, at the Combine, they were not impressive. Uh, the fact that he was only six foot one and has a six foot three wingspan, I mean, seems like he might struggle to get steals, or he might struggle to get you know Sear out of the top box yeah. of the of the of the cupboard, let alone get steals off NBA players. But um, you know, I mean, he is though like it's not like he's so small. Like he's about the same size as Chris Paul. He's about the same size as Kemba Walker. I think the difference with those two is that like Chris Paul and Kemba Walker are both pretty active and willing and dogged defenders and. You know, for what they lack in height and, and wingspan, they make up for in aggressiveness um, and just sort of a, just, you know, a hunger for the ball, right? Uh, and when you look at Trey Young, he's just not, he's not a willing defender in that way. He didn't show any of that uh, at Oklahoma. And maybe that's part of his, um, you know, conditioning campaign. Maybe that was just like, hey, look, he's going to have to take every single shot. So, you know, we don't want to exhaust him on defense, but... You know, I think that defensively, like, he is going to have a lot of um, struggles there. And also yeah. offensively. I mean, do you feel like his game, which was a lot of it, was just he has the ability to pull up from, like, 35 feet and within? 
do you feel like that part will translate to the NBA, especially when he sees bigger defenders? I'm I'm glad you asked me about the offense because I probably should have <laughs> talked about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, he's good. He's yeah. definitely good. I mean, yeah. we're talking about weaknesses, but obviously... For sure. Yeah. He is... Like, I I hate to compare him to Steph, but he's he has so much Steph in his offensive game, mm-hmm. but he's a better passer. Like, he has much better vision than Steph ever had, and... I mean, you could see that in the way that he finds the open man and the open guys that he had in Oklahoma weren't good. Yeah, they were... Oh, my God. It was a bad roster. Like, I watched these guys miss layups all season. (laughs) I just... I don't know what he was playing with. He's not going to have that in the NBA unless he gets drafted by the Magic and he has to play with Bismack Biombo all day. But other than that, like, if you give him another really solid uh, option, like right next to him he's going to be great like like you said he could drop it from 35 feet he was he was hitting shots from half court with like 18 seconds on the shot clock mm. he's capable of doing this and that's what i mean by he's a lot like steph he's not scared to take that shot and he will hit it it's just when you're getting double teamed and you're not that athletic right how are you supposed to succeed right you open it up a little bit you give him a little bit of space he's going to be an excellent offensive player it just comes down to will he become the best point guard in the draft mm-hmm I, it's hard to say. Um, I would probably pick him above the other two, but there's never a guarantee. That's true. That's true. Um, the, uh, the other concern I have with Trey is just like, can he drive to the rim successfully, right? That's one thing that we don't give like Steph enough credit for. for Steph sure. is a really efficient finisher. He's always been that way. He's improved a lot over his career as well. But, I mean, I don't know. Trey Young's not an explosive finisher. I think he kind of – it would be very rare to see him dunk in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not a very powerful player. I think what the one thing he did in college that kind of made up for it was he was really good at drawing fouls. Yes. And I feel like that can obviously sort of, you know, even the playing field when you're small, but for sure. One thing to mention as well is he he does a great job of getting into the getting into the paint and uh-huh. hitting floaters. Like he has a really nice floater and okay. he's not that bad of a finisher, but I mean his size alone is going to make it difficult on the pro level, but mm. those floaters are going to make a big difference, right? True, true. Um one guy in the draft that has me really intrigued, uh, and I guess there's a bit of risk because he had you know uh, back injuries that pretty much you know knocked him out of his uh, collegiate campaign, his freshman campaign, is Michael Porter. We're talking about a six foot ten uh, power forward um, who has just an incredible mid range game. Um, his his jumper is really really nice. Again, a lot of this is going off of what he showed in college or sorry in uh, high school because he didn't play much in his freshman year, but. Um, Michael Porter Jr. I mean, I feel like he might have some of the... He might, in this draft, and we're talking about a lot of really talented guys, he might be the guy that has the highest upside. And he himself said he's the best player in the draft. He's very confident. He's just... He's so good. I remember at the beginning of the season, he was was who I had my eyes on above anybody else. He was Mm going to be the number one pick. Everybody was super excited to watch him. And then two minutes into game one, and he's done. And then he came back for those last two games, and he just didn't look healthy. And it's scary because we're talking about a 19-year-old kid that just had back surgery. Like, that's not a good sign. You know, you don't want that. But if he gets back to where he could have been or where he was supposed to be, I should say, yeah, he's going to be a star. Like, I have not seen anybody have such a smooth jumper. Like, I... Yeah. He has such a high release point and it's so it's so perfectly compact like he's not his his arms aren't flailing like he's a long-limbed guy. Right. And he's just so like perfectly structured in his jumper and he's he doesn't need to set his feet properly. Like he could just rise up from anywhere from any angle 
and he'll just he'll nail it because it's just a perfect jump shot. Yeah, I mean he's uh, he's a little bit like Kevin Durant in that way. I don't think he has the same explosive athleticism as Durant. Durant Definitely is a fair. phenomenal athlete, yes. but in terms of just the jump shots, like him shooting over guys, and this isn't like a Brandon Ingram situation where he's not strong enough. He's actually you know pretty solidly built. It's for just sure. that like, yeah, I mean the footwork for the jumpers. Um, with him are really impressive and you know he's so big that at that size if he's operating at the mid post one dribble going to the rim finishing uh he's you know six foot ten and he he has a bit of a handle where he can actually put on the floor and you, especially if you look at the modern game today he's probably going to start out at small forward but probably end up at power forward and if yep. he improves defensively and and you know stays healthy he could even be a center in tonight in today's nba game and uh I don't know. I would just advise anyone listening to go on YouTube and look up his one-on-one tapes against, um, I think it was Dennis Smith Jr. Dennis Smith Jr., yeah. Yeah, it was like an Under Armour event or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It Man, the moves you see him making there, you don't even see NBA players making. He was like moves, 16 man. or 15 or 16 at the time, too. Yeah. And he's just, some of the jump shots he was hitting or even trying, I'm like... Man, it's it, like one-legged, like spin, f- like fade, kind of like. Me, tell leaning. me, you don't see a little T Mac in that? Like, it's a, yeah, yeah, a little bit. It's he's a lot of fun. He's gonna be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, for sure. Um, also, one thing about this draft, which I, I found really strange, was that like this is a draft that's really heavy on centers, right? Like you look at, and, and not just like you know whatever, like old school centers. There's a lot of new school centers. Like you look at guys like Jaron Jackson, like yep. you know, able to defend multiple positions, has a bit of an outside shot. But I mean. The fact of the matter is, this is a draft that is really stocked with centers. And if you look around the NBA, there's only like, I don't know, five or six centers that really make an impact and are able to, you know, um, not just be positives, but be positives against the best teams in the league. Um, this is definitely a perimeter oriented game. Are we going to look back on this draft similar to like 2011, basically, when in, in that draft, as you recall, Derek Williams goes second, then Enos Cantor, Tristan Thompson. <laughs> Jonas Valanciunas, Jan Vesely, Bismack Biombo, right? And, like, those are the guys that were picked, like, high up, like yes. lottery guys. Yep. And then later in the lottery, you got Kemba, you got Clay, you got Kawhi. And that's really where the cream of the crop is, along with number one Kyrie Irving. But is is this is, is this going to be one of those situations where we're, we're going to look back in three, four years and go, wow, why didn't, uh, you know, all these te- – like, why didn't teams like the Magic draft, like, you know, shy or anything like that? It's fair. It's definitely fair when you look back at it. Um, the big difference, I think, is every single one of the guy, those guys you named, outside of maybe Biombo, they're horrible defenders. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them are really good rim protectors. You can't switch out any of them on the perimeter. Okay. Um, at least off the top of my mind, I don't think any of them can. Right. We're talking about the 2011 guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. None of those guys can switch on the perimeter. Tristan um, can do a little bit. But a little I mean, bit. He, he's but, faded now, too. But how much do you really want Tristan being your starting center? I, I don't want Tristan <laughs> Thompson on my team at all. That's it. You don't want the Kardashian curse. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, like none of those guys are really reliable uh, defensively, except, like I said, except for Biombo. But then you look at Biombo and you're like, well, he can't shoot. Well, neither can any of the guys. Like Jonas just recently got no, kind of a jump shoot. shot, but you don't really want him doing that, that often. Mm-hmm. Um, at least with these guys, you know, some of them are going to be able to switch and do a great job switching like yeah. Mohamed Bamba is going to be an awesome awesome switch defender right. <clears throat> and he's going to be a ridiculously good rim protector I don't know how he's going to do against post defense but nobody's so physically imposing that they're going to dominate him in the post outside of like what Embiid and Cat sure. um, but even then like he's still long enough to at least contest the shots he's got the high like he's got the biggest wingspan ever, ever recorded ever. 7 foot 10 it's absolutely insane and he's still growing yeah, yeah. It's, it's a 19 year old and he's 
I, I remember watching him against Duke earlier in the year going, and it was him versus Marvin Bagley. And Marvin Bagley, if you look at the box score, you would think to yourself, man, Marvin Bagley dominated that game. Mm-hmm. I watched that game and said to myself, Bamba's going to be the better draft pick. Right. And I said that because I see this kid with this ridiculous length mm-hmm. and this ridiculous potential skill set and this just raw ability. If he can tap into that at all, he's going to be a star. He's okay. going to be a defensive centerpiece. And you could say the same thing about Jaron Jackson. You watch some of his games and you're like, man, he could switch. He could block shots. Yeah. Uh, he could hit the three. You know, he was shooting what? I think he shot like 38, 40% from three this mm-hmm. season. His problem was he just couldn't stay on the floor. Right. If he could stay on the floor, you got a superstar in your hands. Yeah. Um, later in the draft, you're going to get guys like, like you said, Shy. Um, there's Lonnie Walker who could potentially become a really good player. Okay. Uh, Zaire, Zaire Smith is gaining a lot of traction right now. So you have some guys that could be really good, but. I just I do think that the bigs are they've they've done a good job earning that <laughs> that respect. Yeah, I mean seriously though, this is like it's just strange when you see like a mock draft and like seven of the players For are sure. centers, right? But I mean e- individually, I feel like a lot of them do have good cases. Like you know, even a guy like Bagley, who we haven't talked much about, like For sure. a phenomenal athletic player who yeah. is a really good finisher, lefty. Um, you know, really polished for his age. Even a guy like Robert Williams, who's like a just a yeah. su- like just superb a, athlete, just a monster. Yeah, he's you gonna see, have some of the best dunks in the NBA. I have never seen a guy built like that. Like, he's a monster. He yeah. he looks a lot like DJ is now, like DeAndre Jordan. Mm. Like in DeAndre Jordan wasn't no built DeAndre like Jordan that when he, came out. when he came yeah, out. Yeah, he was yeah. a little chunky. Like this kid's a freaking monster. Right, right. And we're not even talking about Wendell Carter or Wendell Carter's another one. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. No, this is this is a center heavy draft. I For mean, sure. Who knows? Maybe they usher in the age of the center. Um, two more quick questions. Uh, one, who are like th- give me like three sleepers that can be you know impact players that won't end up in the lottery in this draft. Three sleepers. Uh, I'm probably gonna go with uh, Shake Milton. Uh, for one, he has that kind of Jamal Crawford, Lou Williams type of skill set. Okay. He's gonna score, but he has amazing handles. So you can play the point, you can play the two, mm. bring him off the bench. He's going to get you buckets. Uh, Jair Smith, like I mentioned, he's he came out of nowhere this year. Elite athleticism. If he gets any tiny bit of a jumper, he's going to be a phenomenal player. Uh, Melvin Frazier is one that stood out. Uh, he's coached by the great Mike Dunleavy Sr., one of the greatest NBA coaches oh, of all word. time. Oh, <laughs> word. I didn't know he was still doing it. <laughs> yeah, he, he coached him at Tulane. They were Tulane was terrible this year, but mm. – uh, I mean, it's nice to have a guy play under a coach that has NBA experience, right. and he's developed pretty well. And he went from a 24% three-point shooter um, in his sophomore year to a 38% mm-hmm. three-point shooter. If that can, if he can maintain that or continue to improve, that's another guy that can stand out that has elite athleticism. Mm-hmm. So those are a few guys. Um, okay, and the other question is, uh, out of everybody in the lottery, and I'm looking at your uh, mock draft right now, which you can read on thescore.com, um, which one of these lottery players do you feel like has the biggest bust potential? I feel like people will hate me for saying this. Mm. Um, like, I would have to go with Bagley. Okay. And I, I, I hate to say it. I, I don't know what it is about him. I just, I see him as such a huge liability on the defensive end. And I just don't see that as something that he can really improve on. Mm-hmm. Offensively, all he needs to do is just get a consistent jumper. You'll be fine. You could You could play. Um, he's he's great with his left, uh, but he's not a very good free throw shooter. So you kind of wonder how much consistency you can get out of it. Right. But defensively, he's just such a liability that he might be unplayable. Mm. 
Duke had to actually switch to a zone this year because he was that bad. And mm. I mean, even then, you would still see moments where you were like, man, like he just cannot do anything against the perimeter. And then if somebody's driving on him, he has no ability to protect the rim. He's not long enough. Even though he's like this elite athlete, um, they relied on Wendell Carter to do everything around the rim. Right. And he's a great rim protector, but Duke still struggled defensively when Begley was out there, no matter who they had out there. Is this like a Julio Okafor situation? I don't want to say it's that bad just because Okafor was this like plotting center that could only post up. Right. Like Bagley can drive on dudes. Like Yeah, he's a better athlete for sure. Much better. And he's he's got good handles for his size and he's super skilled. And that's why I hate saying it. I don't know what it is about Bagley. As for the game today, you have to at least protect the rim or switch on the on the perimeter if you're gonna do something on defense. You can't just come out there and just be a good offensive player and as a big and think you're gonna impact the game. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for helping out in the segment. And we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll do our playoff flashback. Welcome back to the final segment of the show where we look back at a notable playoff moment. And in the spirit of Steph Curry returning to form, Steph Curry swearing on live television uh, and getting scolded by his mom almost immediately. Uh, we're going to look back to 2016, which isn't a long time ago, but it feels like a very long time ago because that was probably the, one of the last times we saw the Warriors struggle because they honestly have not ever since. Um, this game, though, the Warriors did not struggle. This is uh, game four of the Western Conference semifinals, the second round in 2016 against the Blazers. The Blazers had just won game three to pull back a game in the series uh, 2-1, and then Steph... Comes back uh, after injuring his MCL, slipping on Donatus, Mighty Eunice's back sweat. <laughs> and the man comes off the bench and he goes off. Goes off. I mean, he had 40 points on the night off the bench uh, and 17 points in overtime to lead the uh, Warriors to victory. Cash, um, do you have any. What, what, what do you remember about that game and just, you but- know. My favorite memory of this game, and you included it in our notes, was the look on Paul Allen, the Blazers owner's face. He sits baseline under one of the buckets. And just the look of, like, this combination of being stunned and also just this, like, defeated look. It was great. And it was, like I mentioned before we started the show, it was the same look Mike D'Antoni had watching Steph do this exact same thing (laughs) just the other night. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's hard to make one of the richest people in the world do that. Like, usually people with a super yacht that has, like, a submarine and, like, a couple of helicopters on this <laughs> massive ship. Just look absolutely poor. Yeah, they, ne- they never look like that. They never look that <laughs> upset unless, like, you know, there's some crazy things happening in the stock market. But, like... Like, yeah, basically it was like the 2008 recession and then, like, Steph Curry going out for 70 points that made Paul Allen look like that. Uh, Will, what do, you, what, do you, what do you remember about this game? Some of the threes that he hit, like, he, he didn't miss, like, a ridiculous amount of, amount of games, but the threes that he hit in that game, like, the fourth quarter and the overtime were just absolutely insane. There was the one that we were watching before we got in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of just let the ball bounce around, and he just expected Andrew Bogut to pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> and he just kind of wandered away from the ball. Cut to the corner, bounced up. <laughs> Bogut gets it to him, and he just flicks it up like it's nothing. Like, yeah, some of the, sh- the some of the shots this guy hits are just absolutely insane. And yeah, he's just he's the best shooter ever, man. What else is there to say? Yeah, I mean, look, 
40 points, 9 rebounds, 8 assists. And this is um, – he returned ahead of time um, for the MCL sprain. And also, like, when he came back, like, he really – looked like he was completely there maybe it was adrenaline and no matter i'm not really sure what it was but like steph was basically riding on a high the entire season he you know became unanimous mvp that year and like he came back and even for a guy with a knee injury then you know we've seen in this year's playoffs like steph's been a little bit up and down mostly up a little bit down but like this game one he's driving to the basket um he's he's really competing pretty well on defense as well but like he's driving past big men he's pulling up well he's finishing at the rim and he he almost dunked at one point man it was crazy and like obviously the overtime was the craziest part of it like the fact that he was just pulling up all these threes but like they wouldn't even have gone to overtime in the first place if Steph you know wasn't um you know pulling up and then also finding um you know Draymond and Harrison Barnes for some key assists and honestly, Steph could have ended it right there before regulation, but his little push shot went off. But, um, you know, he made up for an overtime. 17 points. 27 yeah. in the fourth in overtime. And so, like, 13 points the first three quarters. Like, he, it's, he just picked it up. It's kind of like the third quarter of this last game, right? He's just absolutely insane. He could do that to you. Yeah. The one cautionary tale, I guess, would be that similar to this series coming off an injury. Mm-hmm. And after that game, everyone, Steph included, shouting, I'm back, just assumed, all right, like, all is well. And in the end, he was never really 100% um, other than that return game in those mm-hmm. playoffs. And you, everyone remembers game seven when he could not beat Kevin Love off the dribble. He had a couple yeah. good games in the playoffs. He did. Yeah. Yeah. And this is obviously one of them. And then, dude, he was incredible in the OKC series. He was. I don't, really, he was. Buy, I don't really buy that he was not 100%, not 100% in the Cavs series. That seems convenient. Yeah. That's what they'll tell you. Like, that's what a lot of people point back to, though, is the reason yeah. that, you know, probably the greatest team of all time yeah. didn't win a ring that year was that Curry was never really 100% after the knee injury and that Draymond shouldn't have been suspended though let's just throw that in there. no no come on he should have been suspended Draymond should come on man you he should have been suspended against OKC I'm kind of happy he, he did because of the story Steven Adams sure. square sure but in like, the midsection I kind of cannot be I miss Draymond Green kicking like <laughs> I, it was the most yeah. obnoxious thing and it was like what doesn't this dude understand how does he keep doing this it was but a now, Luis Suarez abiding yeah. in, equivalent in the NBA now that it's actually been like a year and a half couple of years since it's been in the news I'm kind of like man I actually missed when that was a story and I remember yeah. like after games going back and looking at highlights being like man I think there was another kick there or like <laughs> oh I'm yeah that's slow- right people yeah. were breaking down like we this were like breaking film, down yeah we were breaking down like every flailing of his leg He'd be like oh yeah. was this a kick and I, I'm not gonna it's lie it's funny that, that he said it was a natural motion like oh my leg just twitches like that yeah. man every time I jump it just flicks yeah. up and it just I don't know wherever it lands it lands no man we know what you're trying to do I it is what it is, though. What are you gonna do? It is really funny, though, that like the last, like the reason he got suspended was because LeBron clearly taunted him. Like he stepped over the man, right? Um, brilliant move by LeBron. Really, you know, playing 4D chess as you know. Ty Lue told LeBron that the worst thing you could do to someone is step over them, and LeBron's like, "All right, I got this." He knows from experience. Yeah, All yeah, those memes yeah, got to Tyrone yeah. Lue, man. <laughs> oh man, um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, honestly, though, like I. I'm a little bit surprised still that people aren't signing Donatus Yunus. I know he has back issues, but you got to look at the fact that he brings back sweat. And, like, that's been the only thing that's stopped Steph in the past. So, if I were the Rockets next time, I'd try to get Yunus back, you know, have him slip on the floor accidentally, quote-unquote, and just see what happens, you know? Maybe like, even sign Zaza. It might work. Yeah, maybe sign Zaza. You know, Zaza is, like, like at least 50% of his body is, like, uh, sweating pores, basically. So, um, 
All right. Well, that does it for this week's podcast. Um, late night edition, of course, at the Score Studios. Uh, thank you to Cash for coming on the podcast. Thank you to Will. A great debut, Will number two. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for the nickname. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk more um, in the weeks leading up to the draft, given that you're our draft expert. I'll be here. Um, have, are you going to change anything from what you our previous recorded session? A- anything stand out from uh, Luka Doncic's uh, EuroLeague run? I mean, he got named f- uh, Finals MVP, and uh, you know he he won EuroLeague. He wasn't he wasn't like ridiculously good because he in the in the final game because he played against the best team best defensive team in Europe. Okay, but Real Madrid, Real Madrid upset. Fenderbach like that that was an upset win right so um, shout out to him and it's absolutely disgusting that the Kings and the Hawks have reportedly said they'll probably that's gotta be be false this is a 19 year old (laughs) dominating winning MVPs carrying his team to a championship and an upset win in the second best league in the world hands down in an atmosphere where people don't realize like young guys even the most talented young promising prospects yeah. don't play a lot in Europe because their coaches don't trust them and it's like a very respect oriented you know what I mean of course and they have no choice but to give Doncic the minutes that he gets and he's won MVP because he's that good and he's doing it as a 19 year old against grown ass men in the second best league in the world yeah. if it's not a smoke screen and the Hawks and Kings are legitimately considering passing on him and I'm even gonna say like if the Suns pass on him man I know Aiden's got hype but I do not understand how you can watch what Luka Doncic has done in the EuroLeague at 19 years old and pass on him. Quick reminder that the person that um, Doncic took the point guard minutes from is Sergio Alol, who was the EuroLeague MVP last year, who went out with an injury, and they said, hey, you know what, we'll give this kid a, a run as our starting point guard because he's really good. Mm-hmm. And he ended up dominating the league from start to finish. So, And by the time Lowell came back, he didn't get those minutes anymore. He didn't get. He didn't deserve those minutes anymore. Yeah. Doncic earned those minutes, and he maintained. Whenever they were on the floor together, Doncic was the point guard. So yeah. we're talking about an MVP caliber guy playing behind an MVP caliber guy because a nineteen-year-old MVP caliber guy because he's just that good. Yeah. Not not enough gets made about the fact that Real Madrid has like one of the most stacked rosters you could put together. I mean, Anthony Randolph. Um, Trey Tompkins. Trey Tompkins, sure. J.C. Carroll's uh, J.C. Carroll's a pretty good shooter. Yeah. Um, you know, the some international Rudy Fernandez. They got some solid players on that yeah, roster. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. They got the couple bigs, Walter Tavares. They got... Um, yeah, Tavares is, yeah. is crazy like, big. Seven foot three. Yeah. But Gustavo Ayon has been great for them he's all year. Great. He's yeah. starting big. It's like a lot of NBA experience. Yeah. 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 I don't know if that undercuts or, or, or helps uh, Doncic's case that we're, we're rattling off these names. But um, <laughs> in EuroLeague, there are legends, yes. Yeah. In the NBA, not so much. And any of them yeah. would feast in the NCAA. That this is, is true. 100% that is true. fact. Yeah, he would be dominating <laughs> other children. Come on, man. Anyway, um, thanks to everyone for listening. As always, uh, please support the show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. And we'll be back next week.